0: More than just outward and substance and eating and drinking and washing in the body. There's something deeper. There's something inner. There's something more substantial. We see this move through scripture that the ceremonial laws are symbolic. But the moral law and as much as it defines and gives us the standards of God's holiness and righteousness is its substantive element. That is the substance that David uses to answer the question. Who is worthy to enter his tabernacle or his temple? So as we consider the historical context, the question and the answer become even more amazing in this view. And we can see that the Holy Spirit himself was God breathing into David truths that would transcend even his time. There was a progressive revelation to the average individual, but there were those who were anointed by the Holy Spirit writing beyond their time as it were anticipating the fullness of new covenant revelation in Christ. And David was one privileged to bear that pen, that quill or whatever use. David was one who is writing beyond his time under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his answer shows it and proves it. Point number three, consider the poetic power of David's question. I would like to draw your attention to just a few things the way this poem is laid out. First of all, again, in verse one, David says... O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? First, he asks the question: Who's going to travel with you? Who will be mobile with you? And then secondly, he says, Who will dwell in your holy hill? So there's these two senses. One is more transient, one is more permanent. So he mentions both of them. And as I said, David was in this significant time was looking forward to the temple being built that would permanently, geographically anyway, establish a seat for the presence of God. It had been in this moving uh, tabernacle. What he's doing here is employing a metaphor. He's showing the moving aspect and the permanent aspect, and then he's relating it to the evidence in our own lives that we are worthy. Notice in verse 2, here's the moving aspect. Who can sojourn in your tent? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So there's poetic power here. God had made sufficient provision and grace for his people to dwell with them as they traveled. And it was every bit as powerful and miraculous as when his presence was established in a permanent location. For you and us, you and I, just the same. As we walk in this life, though not fully experiencing the permanence of our holiness outwardly and manifest in our flesh. His grace is sufficient. And we have faith that one day that evidence will be permanent when we are resurrected in newness of life and everything of our past and sin is gone and we have only the new, the resurrection, to enjoy perfect holiness and union with our God in every way, just as it is substantive, In our heart. He who walks blamelessly. And does what is right. But then notice the very last phrase. He who does these things. Shall never be moved. Who will sojourn in your tent. Who will dwell on your holy hill. He who walks blamelessly. Shall never be moved. Whether you're going or planted. Whether it's now or then. Here or later. His grace is sufficient. And it is the same requirement namely in the fullness of revelation, Jesus' blood that equips us for a life of sanctification, even as it does a future of glorification. I think this is interesting and powerful as we read that David is using this example of his experience and the Israelites to show that God's grace is sufficient regardless of our station and where we are in life. David is employing this tabernacle and temple transition in Israel's history, as a poetic metaphor. He's drawing parallels in the experience of the Hebrew citizens, of the citizens of Israel, to our own spiritual citizenship. But it goes on, I believe. There's probably more we can draw. This song assumes, it assumes that there is a revelatory intent in the historic situations in Israel that were transient. In other words, when we consider the wanderings of Israel, Why? Why did they wander so? Why was Abraham called out from being planted in these cities and then to live the rest of his life as a sojourner? Why did it take 40 years for Israel, who had been exiled for some 400 in slavery, to finally make it to the promised land? You see, their forefather was a sojourner. He didn't really have a permanent home. He was looking for the city whose builder and maker was God. He had left a city whose builder and maker was man, quite modern in its day behind and its idolatry. Now, what was God's purposes in holding for some 400 years his people in slavery? Why were they not only homeless but oppressed then? And why did it take some 40 years in exile for them to go from point A to point B? And then upon their unfaithfulness, why were they exiled again? And then even through all through history... We get all the way to 2 Peter. And now, us, the covenant people of God, believers, are also called sojourners and exiles. We don't have a permanent home here. And this is the imagery, in part, that the psalm draws on. Abraham sojourned. Israel was in slavery. They had wilderness wanderings. They were in exile. And the believer himself has a dual citizenship, primarily in the city that is to come, in the heaven there is to gain in our home, which is beyond this life. And by design, we're never to be too content right here. Who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell in your holy hill? Those who recognize that God sovereignly has revealed his terms of redemption, even in some of these things that we might take without considering their weight at first glance. In other words, what are the correct tabernacle associations we should consider as we read scripture. Why did God reveal himself and dwell in a tabernacle for a period of time? Well, those associations should not be that, well, it was kind of makeshift, it was temporary. They were in exile after all, and they didn't have a whole lot of talent and skills yet to build. They needed to acquire some practice and time, craftsmen. It's makeshift, it's kind of disposable. It'll do for now. None of those associations... Informed David's poetic use of this experience of Israel. Instead, that sojourning time was foundational. And as we see in Scripture, the record of God's work in their midst while sojourning set forth the defining characteristics of the nation of Israel. It was the crossing of the Red Sea, it was the manna that was delivered. It was the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. It was these things during their time of sojourning that were the reference points that defined in their heart, if they were open to it, the terms, the character of their God, his loving kindness, his care, and the very basis, foundation, and establishment of their nation. Their historical circumstances became the points of reference to exhort Distinguish, establish, unify, educate, preserve, encourage, testify, convict, and then revive, remind, and rebuild an enduring people. And this is true throughout Scripture. From Psalm 78 to Acts chapter 7. Psalm 78 recalls all these events of their sojourning. And it judges them either as faithful and remembering and building upon them and teaching them to their children, or as unfaithful in their forgetfulness toward his providence in their history. And again in Acts 7, Stephen preaches a similar and parallel message to those who had just crucified Christ, who had denied God's revelatory purpose in their sojourning. So the poetic power here is significant. The relics of wandering in Israel's experience became the constitutional touchstones of national Israel. Consider the power of David's question as you take in view the history of Israel and what a word like sojourning might mean. It's not something temporary just for now, it's foundational and revelatory. It helps us understand who God is, the fact that He leads us the way He does. And then, point four, consider David's experience. As we begin to move through David's answer in verse two, He proceeds as follows. Who can dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue. And does no evil to his neighbor. (coughs) Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And whose eyes a vile person is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord. And swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Consider David's experience. Did he measure up to this standard? Think about his dramatic graphic sin. The adultery with Bathsheba that resulted in further sin. Murder of Uriah. Lying. Talk about the reproach against his friend. This was a man who was a faithful general in his army. David got the glory for the exploits of Uriah. And here he took up a reproach against his friend and actually reordered the battle plan in order for him to be killed. David committed murder. Did David measure up to these standards here? How can David know that he has walked blamelessly and does what is right? Has he ever betrayed a friend? Has he ever taken a bribe against the innocent? Has he ever done evil to his neighbor? In that one experience alone, he would judge himself falling short certainly. And even the songs of repentance that are written in Psalms, they're very candid as David says, I am nothing, I am no one, I'm a sinner. I cannot trust my kingly station as anointed leader of Israel to make me worthy of the presence. Look at me, I'm a lying, murdering, adulterer. I cannot trust anything of my own behavior. I've proven myself time and again to transgress God's law and step outside of His will and purposes. Even doing unjust things like taking a census. That resulted in, I think, some 70,000 of His own countrymen slain in judgment. This is a man whose sin was responsible for the, whole, the wholesale slaughter of thousands, thousands of people who were under His rule under his kingship. Could a man like that be assured that he was worthy of God's presence? This to us speaks again that David is offering a causeway, not the cause. David was a man after God's own heart and relied on something outside of himself as assurance that he could dwell in God's tent, that he could dwell on his holy hill. He was painfully aware by his own shortcomings that he didn't measure up to the standard. Nevertheless, what was inside David moved him not to double down in bitterness, resentment, and rebellion, but to repent and to pour out his heart and to throw himself upon the mercy of God. And in David's experience, it is quite clear that he was assured by the mercy of God alone, knowing again by the sojourning journey of his countrymen that God's mercy was real And he had intervened, though they deserved wholesale slaughter numerous times, to be erased from the planet at every turn, God had spared and preserved for himself a remnant. God had promised David, I will build you a house forever. David believed God's promises, and he believed them to the fullest. That was the only way that he could have assurance, not just that he could dwell in God's presence one day, but that the fearful behavior that he betrayed in his sin could be corrected, and repentance would not be an exercise in futility. Consider the weight of David's question again, as you consider his own experience and your own. Consider the historical context. Consider the poetic power. Consider David's experience. And you can go through these bullet points, if you will, verses 2 through 5, and match every single one with something that happened either from David or to David that was important and influential and a real milestone in his life and in his understanding. Finally, consider the answer to David's question. Ultimately, the answer we've already stated. Who can dwell in the presence of God? Those who are consecrated by inward measure. A little further explanation, perhaps we could say, those of whom the revelation of God has made a significant impression on their whole life including their persona, their relationships, their ideals, and their, even their finances. Those who are consecrated by inward measure, looking inside and, and seeing how their heart has changed as evidenced by a different relationship to themselves, their own identity, different relationship to others, different association with values and ideals, and a different way even to shore up their livelihood and deal with finances those of whom the revelation of God has made a significant impression on their whole life, including these categories. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth with his heart, in verse 2, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbors. One whose persona has changed, and they reconcile where their heart's at with the law of God, whose heart and speech and behavior evidences that they are different inside. That God has done a miracle in changing their heart in the first place. Secondly, their relationships. Does not take... Or Verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. Does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Those who do unto others as they would have them do unto them. Who take seriously the second table of God's commands. That show by our relationship with others... A full understanding or at least a growing knowledge of grace. That we are together caught in our sin. And if we don't offer forgiveness. We presume the right to judge. And God alone is righteous judge. And we alone are dependent on his mercy to be justified. And it goes on our ideals. In whose eyes a vile person is despised verse 4. But who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt. And does not change. Someone who is willing to point out. That this. Although perhaps powerful by worldly measure. Rich and influential person. Is not deserving of a compliment. It would be nothing but flattery. To elevate exalt or acknowledge. This person as something. To value or shoot for. An ideal although we're surrounded by them. And he was as well. A person who's faithfully showing evidence. That he can sojourn with the Lord does not exalt the vile person, even though they're popular by worldly standards, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He begins to follow value, trust, and laud those who share his heart convictions and evidence as much in their own lives, even as he strives to do the same. And one example is how he honors even his own word. He swears to his own hurt and does not change this meaning that he is willing to keep his covenants, even if it means his own death or hurt or pain. Because the honor of the Lord and obedience to him is more important than his own comfort and convenience. And it goes on. And you can make these connections yourself. The point being here, that one who has significantly been influenced by a revelation of God should expect comprehensive and growing evident change in their life. That it would make a significant impression on all these areas and more as the word of God details. Finally, it's interesting that even his money, his finances, his means are in view here as an expectation for change. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And there's more commentary deserving of that there. But usury is also a word that has been translated in other versions to deal with this question of, should I lend my money out for usury or interest? Should I give a penalty when I... Uh, um, present a loan and basically the intent here is that as we lend money or deal with our finances every decision must be reconciled with God's righteous standards it is wrong for us to profit to the expense of another to build our fortune at the detriment of the poor however if we have a mutually beneficial agreement interest in that regard may be perfectly lawful under the intent of the law the point is here that the godly man cares about something that others would consider neutral or trivial, even down to his last penny. How can I glorify God with my pennies, with my fortune? What would he have me do? The godly think about these things. Those who are a displaying evidence of heart change, who show by their outward behavior that an inward change has taken place, thrown themselves in the mercy of God. Their life is ruined as far as the world goes. They no longer can take pleasure in what the world offers as diversions, fun, and sin. Now they must even take care so that not so much as a penny is used for their own self-interest at the expense of another. Does not take bribes against the innocent. And, of course, that indicts about half of our law profession in this land. And as we compare our society, our own hearts and the order of our day against these standards, we can see that we are severely languishing, and that there are many, by some of these evidence, who ought to rightly say, I have not considered with enough weight, David's first question. Who should dwell? Who shall dwell? Sojourn in your tent. Dwell on your holy hill. I'd like to close by just reminding you of 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read these. We read them earlier in worship as well. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. Condu- keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is almost like the New Testament equivalent of Psalm 15. Who are we? We are sojourners in relationship To what this world has to offer. We're passing through for the glory of another. Who will we be? We will be those who will receive our citizenship in full. Upon passage from this life. And this transient state. To our heavenly home. In glory. How should we act in the meantime? Wage war. Wage war against the passions. Of the flesh. Which themselves wage war Against your soul. Things that would influence you. To act without integrity. With your money. To take advantage of somebody else. For selfish gain. Things that would further the bad counsel. Of someone. Or the poor reputation. That is unjustly declared. And participate in gossip. And backbiting. How do we do this? How do we wage war against our soul? Some against those things. Which would. Dispirit our soul. How do we abstain from the passions of the flesh? Psalm fifteen answers some very specific ways. Fight in our personal identity and our relationships, in our ideals, and even our finances to represent the glory of God. They speak. He goes on in verse twelve. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. We are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. And a holy nation. David knew somewhat in the physical. What it was like to be of royalty. He was was familiar with the Old Testament priesthood. But there is something to perhaps greater measure. That you and I can appreciate. Than even David the author of scripture was able to. And that is. The fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who establishes our identity, who changes our persona, who gives us value and meaning in proportion relationship to what he is and who he stands for and what he loves and laws. And finally, how we live, give and worship of our finances, of our time, of our means, of our care and compassion for others ought to spring from that well. As we do this, we will find ourselves with feet firmly planted, one in front of the other, on the godly causeway. The causeway that is a life lived in answer to the question, how in the world can a wicked man ever come even within a seeing distance of the glory of God, without having that veil in between, like Moses had, between him and the children of Israel, without having wings over our faces like the seraphim have, in that picture, in that vision that Isaiah experienced. Without having the eternal chasm fixed of wrath to look forward to upon our own death here because of the just deserving, the things that we justly deserve of our sin. How can we be on the godly causeway? Trust in Jesus Christ. He is our identity. And His work, His worth, and His attributes are worth celebrating so long as we sojourn from here to glory. I invite you to close your eyes and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would consider ourselves in good company and fellowship with those who suffered for your name's sake, who rode inspired by the Spirit, that even indicted themselves in their life, but at their own expense at times, as much as their sin represented, were able by reflection and contrast to glorify you. I pray, Lord, that we would find the company of those who have gone before and even more so the sufferings of the perfect man and God, Jesus Christ, a place to derive the answer to the question, how can I stand in the presence of Almighty God First, Lord, I pray that our response would be along the lines of Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am one who is unclean of lips and dwell in the same. Secondly, I pray for a confidence a boldness and an overflowing life of worship that would march with purpose and vision down the causeway to godliness that would show by evidence of our works, the work of Christ as its source to all the world around, the distinctives of your people who are just sojourners here, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, called out, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, called out, set apart for your will and purposes. And let us always live with a certain amount of divine discontent, with a certain amount of I'm home, just deferred to that moment when we pass from this life which is strange in some ways and alien to us, to our perfect fellowship and home with you forever in glory. I pray that you would answer these prayers according to the spirit that works mightily inside every believer and the same spirit that would draw those who yet are outside the faith. And when the answer is forthcoming, let us shine, shine for the glory of God. And point to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen.